Oh, we're really glad you're here. By the way, happy Mother's Day. All right, it's not Mother's Day. I just did that because I wanted to remind you, in just a couple weeks, it is Mother's Day. Well, I said that. Some guy turned his wife and said, you didn't tell me to send my, car- my mother a card. Anyway, it's all right. You have time to get the cards, the flowers, the gifts to mom. And what we would like from you is a picture of mom. Now, here's the deal. If you have kids in our Four Corners Kids Ministry right now, we're glad. They're having a great time. They're loving it. But you probably need to help them, Dad. Send us a picture of mom. We'll tell you how to do that at the end of the service. And you also have time to get a card. Now, go out and buy your mom the best card possible. Get her the one that says, you're the best mom in the world, right? Now, even if she's not, even if part of you wants to say, you did the best you could, mom, even if that's where you are, send her the card that says, you're the greatest mom in the world, and bless her, all right? And then bring your mom with you to Four Corners on Mother's Day, and she's going to love the service. We're going all acoustic that day. We will uh, turn it down just a bit. We'll speak encouraging words to her and let her know how much she and her role that she's played in this world matters to us and matters to God. But today, we're beginning a brand new series called Mine, Mine. And if you brought a guest with you today, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the worst day in the world to bring a guest to church because they're going to talk about money. But let me let you off the hook for just a second. I'm not talking with you over the next few weeks about the money we want you to give us. It's not what we're talking about. I want to talk with you about how God has blessed you with things for your good, for your good. God enjoys blessing the people he loves. He enjoys giving. You may have heard the famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but it begins this way, for God so loved, because he loves, that he gave. God gives the people he loves great stuff, and he's given us some real blessings, some time, talent, and treasures. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about God's perspective. Why would God do that? What is he hoping to accomplish in your life? And how can we as a church partner with God's agenda for you and give something to you, have a heart for you, as opposed to expecting something from you? So rather than this being an awkward day to bring a guest, it's a great day to bring a guest because they're going to discover some of God's heart. And we're going to go all the way in the Bible to the very first few pages. So if you brought one with you, go to the first few pages of your Bible in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, on the screen behind me will be the words. We're going to go to that very first story in the Bible. And in it, we're going to find some powerful truths that begin to shed light on God's heart, on God's agenda. What was God doing Anyway, in creating a world, what was he doing in blessing us, giving us a a place to live and giving us air to breathe and giving us a mind to think and people to do life with? What really is his profound agenda? And we're going to go deep for just a second. Uh, I'm going to use a few words that maybe you haven't heard before, maybe you have. Here's one we're going to talk about. Imago Dei. Imago Dei. Now, this is a, a Latin phrase. Um, used to be that the Bible was often read in Latin, but Imago Dei is a phrase that's come to mean a pretty significant concept. Literally, the phrase means image of God, image of God. The Imago Dei, though, as a theological, philosophical principle says that you and I, as human beings, the Bible tells us, are made in God's image. And the image of God on us has all kinds of far-reaching implications. You are Imago Dei. 
in the, in the image of God. I am in the image of God. And the implications of God giving us his image is huge. It's huge. As a little kid, I used to think about it this way. I was incorrect, but it wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just the beginning of my thought process about this. I used to think that God must look somehow like me, which was really encouraging to me because I figured if I look like God, he looks like me. He must be one handsome fellow. It's kind of what I was thinking internally. That's a joke. It's very arrogant, isn't it? Um, it must, that's kind of what I was thinking, that in, in some sense, this was a physical image, but the truth is, when we talk about the image of God, we're going to read about it in a second, talk about its implications for our stuff, for our time, talents, and treasures. It has nothing to do with the physical image of God. Nothing at all. I used to think that maybe being made in the image of God meant that I had, like, God-like powers. Like, you know, I saw the, the Avengers. Anybody see the Avengers? Woo, good film, huh? I, lo- I, lo- I love it when the good guys win. Anyway, so... Watch the Avengers. Maybe I had like godlike power. I couldn't decide if I was like the Hulk or like Thor. I, I wasn't sure. Maybe some combo of both. Uh, I figured it would be a good thing. That's not even what we're talking about there. Not that you have godlike powers in the sense that you can do major, massive things and move mountains and that sort of thing. That's, that's not exactly what we're talking about. There, there's a different concept. So by now you should be there in your Bible. Let's look at what the Bible says. So John, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Here we go. Then God said... Let us make mankind, humankind, men and women, in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Next verse says, so God created mankind. Humans, men, women, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, in case you missed it already. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is that beginning place in the Bible where we first get introduced to the idea of the Imago Dei, of the image of God being bestowed on human beings. If I use this phrase to you and I said, let's go to the store so that we can buy some milk. Let's go to the store and let's buy some milk. You would know by the way I structured my sentence that going to the store had a purpose built in. We weren't going to the store to hang around. We weren't going to the store to pick up women. We weren't going to the store to just walk around and dream about what we could eat and then walk out with nothing in our bags because nothing was healthy for us. We were going to the store for the express purpose of Getting milk. That same kind of syntactical construction that we find here in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man and women in our image. And then if you recall the phrase it said, so that they may rule, indicates something close to the purpose of us being made in the image of God. Ruling. Now, so far, this is sounding really good to me because I have grandeur ideas. Some say delusions of grandeur. It's all right. But the idea here is that God has made each of us in his image in part so that we can rule. So let me back you up now to what was going on in the minds of people who, for the very first time, read this story in their Bible. The Bible was at 
First, before it was a book that people held, it was a scroll that was unrolled. And before it was a scroll that was unrolled, it was a set of stories that were told with great care, with great attention to detail. And over generations, these stories were preserved, ultimately in scrolls, finally in books, and what you have in your Bible. And the first people that began writing these stories down, they were followers of God. And they wanted to write these stories so that God's ideas and God's truth would be known to people, so they could benefit from them, so they could learn his heart, so they'd be drawn towards him. And these first few groups of people, you may have known them, as the Bible calls them, the Israelites or the Hebrews. And they had an interesting history. Just a little bit of history for a second. They had an interesting history. They would go for a good long time and have a pretty good life. And then the Bible says it this way, that they would forget God. They would forget they needed God. They would forget they were blessed by God. They would forget that God was the source of their provision. They would forget that God was bigger than they were and they were really down here and he was up here. And in forgetting, their lives would begin to run amok. Their values would get out of sorts. The way they treated each other would go badly. And then God loved them. And the Bible says what God would do then is he would send to them a group of people to oppress them, to put pressure on them. And in putting pressure on them, they would start thinking through what life was like when they honored God, when God was at the top of the food chain, when his values were their values, when they realized he was God and they weren't. And then they would, instead of forget God, they would begin to turn back to God. One of the groups of people that oppressed these Hebrew people, history tells us, our Bible tells us, we know them in shorthand form as the Babylonians. A group of people that inherited an area now known as Iraq. Um, over time, just, we'll just call them the Babylonians. And the Babylonians had a bunch of creation ideas. They had their own creation stories. In fact, if you've had a Bible class in freshman year of, of college, you may have heard about this. There was a group of tablets, Babylonian written tablets on stone called the Enuma Elish tablets. A little history here, I promise. We'll move on to other things in a second. But in the Enuma Elish tablets, there is the story of creation. And in a lot of ways, it's similar to the creation story that we're pulling our verses from right now. But in some very spectacular ways, it's different. In fact, in your freshman Bible class, what they probably told you is because there's so much similarity well, that leads a certain amount of doubt or obscurity or shadow over both stories because they're so similar. But the point of the creation story in your Bible is not the similarity. It's where the Genesis account of story of beginning differs from the Babylonian account or the Egyptian account that the real meat of what is taking place occurs. In the Enuma Elish tablets, the Babylonian story, here's how it begins. There was a god, Tiamat, and she was a wicked dude. She, she had power, and she was kind of capricious, and, and, and she loved to be loved. So she decided, you can read the tablets for yourself if you can learn Babylonian or pick up a book, and Google it, Google it. It's, I bet it's in Wikipedia. All right, so you can go there, and what you'll find is what she decided to do is she would create a bunch of robots to serve her purposes. She would create robots to serve her purposes. And they would bring her all kinds of offerings and goods. And nobody, because of her great power, would dare to contradict her authority under punishment of not only earthly doom, but eternal doom. 
So she would create these robots. And when you read these stories, you don't get dialogue like the dialogue we just read. That in the heavenly council, there's a discussion about the kind of created beings that would be made. You get her saying, this is what we're going to do, and they're going to follow me. And if they don't, I'm the big dude, they're the ant crush. Right? So when you read the Genesis account and you see God saying this phrase, I'm going to give the people I create my image. And I'm going to give them my image for the purpose of them ruling. You have a stark difference between the creation stories of old, every other one of them. And the biblical account. And something about the character of God begins to get revealed. And it's a major theme in your Bible. All the way through from the very first chapter we're reading, all the way to the last chapter in in the book of Revelation. The character of God revealed in these verses is drastically different than the ancient gods of the world. In fact, it's almost as if our creation story is not given to answer every potential question. There are still all kinds of questions about how and why and what and when that our Genesis story leaves for us to wonder about. But it doesn't leave us wondering about the character of God. So when you and I read in Genesis chapter 1, we get a clear and accurate snapshot of God's character and his power. And here's for the point for the next four weeks. And his heart for us. The image of God That phrase, our image, was not a phrase that was ambiguous to that early group of readers who first had a set of stories and then a scroll. They lived in a time when kings had kingdoms. It was a feudal system. And the king was at the top of the pyramid. And so the Babylonian story made great sense when you had an empirical ruler who wanted to remind everybody that he was... God's person in charge to be feared and obeyed. Stories were created around the fear that needed to be in place, the pecking order that was there so that people would listen and apply to the earthly king the ideas of the heavenly king and never step out of line. But when you read our Bible, a different story emerges. It's the story of a God who has the same kind of power and certainly can if he choose to step on ants. He he can do that. And certainly part of the truth is he's God and you and I aren't. Clearly that's part of the truth. But in the middle of all of that, God decides to lend not fear. Let us make man so that they may fear us. That's not what we read. And not simply obedience. Let us make men and women in our image so that they will obey us. Let us make man in our image so that they would rule. Significant departure. It says everything about God's value for you. It says everything about God's heart for humanity. God did not want a bunch of robots simply doing his bidding. God wasn't lonely and needed a bunch of cosmic playmates. God wanted to, out of his heart of love, give. Love always gives. God wanted to, out of his heart of love, create a race of beings, human beings, that would have his image, his authority, that they would share 
and his rule. Now, we wouldn't have the full rule of God. The full rule of God is, if you just let me use a little, any math scholars, a little Venn diagram here. Here's a square, and this is all that is. All that is. So God has authority over all that is, but because he's God, he also has authority over all that is not. God has not given us as human beings authority over all that is and all that is not. He has limited our authority to all that is in this world. Now, it's a limited authority, but it's pretty big too. He said, I'm going to give you authority over all the fish of the air, all the all right, fish of the air. That's interesting right there. <laughs> when was the last time you ruled the fish of the air? Huh? Over all the fish of the sea, all the birds of the air, all the beasts of the field, over all the created order. And if you keep reading, every flowering plant. And he places them in this amazing garden. Where there's no death, no pain. No injury, perfect harmony with people. And he says to the man and the woman, I want you to rule this. I want you to manage this. By the way, that command, the very first command of the Bible. In fact, let's read it. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. Blessed. God gave. God bestowed. God blessed. God blessed them and said to them, listen, be fruitful. And all the men said, God, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Fill it up and subdue it. Have control. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, and I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. All of the garden's reality belong to the man and the woman. In a managerial sense. This, this brings us to a very important word. Our first word was, we are made in the image of God. What that means is God did this in effect. He said, I'm in control. I can run the thing. But I choose to empower you. Friends, listen to me. This is very encouraging. God says, I choose to empower you to share in my rule. Not over all the things you can't see, all the things that exist, all the things that are not in the created order, but all the things that are here and now. I'm going to loan you my authority. I'm going to set you up on the throne of the created order. Human beings, I trust you. I am not going to force your hand. I don't want your fear. I created you so that you may rule and reign over all that I have blessed you with. That command has never been rescinded in the pages of your Bible. God never looked at humanity through the pages of your Bible. You searched and tried to prove me wrong and said, hmm, you screwed up. You blew it. It was a great opportunity. You could reign with me over all things seen. In the, but because you blew it, I now rescind the offer. The mandate that God gave human beings existed. In fact, a few pages later in your Bible, in the book of Noah, in the, in the book of Genesis, in the story of Noah, when Noah gets out of the ark, God looks at Noah and says the same kind of stuff. Now be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and subdue or management, manage it. So in the greatest failing of corporate humanity, God looks and says, out of all of this, when everything's been made new, 
I still want you to be my rulers, my managers. I still set you up to serve in my place as the ruler and manager of this world. I talk about this, and the concept seems so lofty and high. Especially if you're like me and you've struggled not to manage the world. You've struggled to manage your world. (laughs) That's tough. If not maybe blowing it all the way in your world, maybe there's some area of your world, your reality, that you haven't fully managed. Maybe there's some relational, mm, or financial, yuck, right? Or some physical, oh, I... If there's some part of your life that isn't fully under control and ruling and reigning, it might be hard to understand this. And yet over you has been spoken an amazing, powerful truth of value and empowerment. That God created you and me to operate in his image, in his place. The idea was God was physically present and stepped out. And left you in charge. He left you in charge of all kinds of things. All the created world. Your life. The stuff he's blessed you with. Your time. Your talent. Your treasures. He's left you in charge of all of that stuff. The biblical word for this by the way. Our second big concept. Is the word steward. you've been in church, you know that every time a pastor uses the word steward, the next phrase is, and the ushers are prepared to take your offering. That's not where we're going. This stuff runs much larger than that. I don't have anything I want from you. I want to today and over the next few weeks unpack what it means for God to look you in the eye and say, I would like for you to rule and reign in the sphere of influence I've given you. I would like you to rule and reign and operate as a steward. And notice what God did not say. God did not say, here's what I'd like to happen. I'd like to step away. Maybe I'll re-engage from here and there. But really, I'm just going to give it to you. It's it's yours to own. It's yours to own. Do with it what you want. He didn't do that. He said it's yours to rule. And here's some basic guidelines to rule by. Here's some basic guidelines. In fact, the rest of our Bible, the rest of our Bible serves kind of like a, a manual of operating, an operator's manual for the blessings God's left for us in this world. The concept of stewardship is massive because stewardship stands in stark contrast to ownership. You heard the gentleman in the video talking about this with his son with an Xbox. You know the difference between owning and managing somebody else's stuff. If you have a bank account, uh, I'm sorry, if you you go on a a business trip and you're on somebody else's bank account and you have an entertainment budget and you're using other people's money, do you go to McDonald's or do you go to Morton's Steakhouse if you can? You know where I go? If it's other people's money, I go to Morton's Steakhouse. That's what I like. Personally, I'm a Brazilian kind of guy. They give you that little tab and it's, you know, green means more food. I almost never turn it over. In fact, if you take me out to Brazilian, I'll show you just how much I can eat. I like to take those little cards home and bring them and put them on my kitchen table just to watch my wife's reaction. She doesn't go for it. One time, I took one upstairs and put it on our bed, put it on green. She didn't think it was funny. (laughs) Not at all. 
But when I'm on other people's money, now that's fun. When I was a kid, Dad, give me some money. And on occasion, this tightwad would. He would give me a, a little bit of money, and, and I would spend it. But when I started earning my own, things began to change. There is a major biblical theme. You will not pass from immature spiritually to spiritually mature, uninformed spiritually to spiritually informed, without passing through this general subject, because you can't turn your Bible three pages without getting right in the middle of a stewardship versus ownership discussion. David, who was the greatest king Israel had ever seen, his son Solomon surpasses him in a lot of ways, but we still talk about David more. David one day was writing in his journal. We have it. It's called the book of Psalms. And he said, Lord, the earth and all that is in it. When he, by the way, when he pens these phrases, he's sitting high. He's on the throne. There's no army that can take him. Lord, the earth and all that is in it. He doesn't say it's mine. He doesn't say it belongs to my kingdom. The earth and all that is in it in Psalm 24 is yours. And in, in the book of Chronicles, the two books there, but in, in, in one of those sections, David's, like, he's on the pinnacle of his greatest achievement. And he pins the words and he says, all that I have, all that I have belongs to you. When David was reigning high, he had a profound sense that he didn't own anything. Instead, he was called to rule or manage or be a steward of the stuff that God had blessed him with. My own son, John Ryan, we were at a football game, and on the way in, they designed the football field so that you had to pass the high school, so you had to pass by the concession stand as you made your way to the home seats. Amazing design. That's how they made all their money. And so they, you'd bring these kids in, and my son, they're suckers for Skittles. My father worked for M&M. We got hooked on Skittles. We used to put it in their bottle, melt them down. They're, they're hooked on Skittles. So he saw Skittles, and he's, mine, mine, mine. I want Skittles. I want Skittles. So I'm a good dad. I bought him some Skittles. We're sitting there, and I said to my son, would you give me one? And being the kind and gracious kid that he is, raised by superb parents who have never failed them in any way in the development, he looked at me and he said, no, Dad, you may not have any of my Skittles. My Skittles. My, my Skittles? Really? He didn't realize that I had enough money in my pocket and enough credit on my credit card that I could have gone back to the convenience stand, to the concession stand, and bought every bit of Skittles they had in stock. He thought that because he had his own little bit and because he hadn't understood that it really wasn't his, that it was just a blessing given to him by his father, that he could just hold it. He was careless in his understanding. He fell into the trap of thinking he was the owner, not the steward, the blessed, the received, the one who was put in the image of. I do it all the time. Our entire country is suffering. In part, because we have not learned this foundational truth about life. The stuff we have, even the ability to earn money to buy more stuff, is on loan to us by God. The fundamental question you have to ask about the stuff that you have is who owns it? Now, I'm not talking in an American legal system sense of who owns it. And I know when we talk to Americans, and I is one, about this, that was a joke. I know proper English mostly. I know when we talk to Americans, the sense of ownership runs deep in our blood. We fought wars over this stuff, and we should. It's a big deal in a very limited perspective. But I want to get global now. I want to look at the 30,000-foot view with you and unpack 
What does God want for you? What is his heart for you? Does God want you and I to be so consumed with owning that we slide down the scale and we buy things on time in order to have ownership or possession, but we don't really own them outright? And over time, without even realizing it, part of the very freedom and ownership that we crave is robbed from us because we're up in eyeballs to our debt. Is that, is that his plan for us? When God said, be fruitful and multiply, he never wanted people to be slaves to the lender. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about why God takes debt so seriously. And why, of course, it's your money, but we are fools if we don't look at the guy who blessed us to begin with and what he said he'd like for us to do with it. How we save, how we spend how we manage, how we live in the image of God, how we operate as stewards of what we've been blessed with. I'm a little passionate. I'm going to tell a story right now that honestly I wasn't sure I was going to tell. So let me me just kind of jump into it. I have uh, recurring kidney stones. Um, By recurring, I mean about every 10 years, I lie flat on my back um, with a series of kidney stones. About 20 years ago it happened. I went 10 years with none. About 10 years ago. And then last August, it happened to me again. So I was taking my daughter to college. And um, I evidently didn't want her to go because the night we dropped her off, I come down with a three-quarter inch kidney stone on like one on each side. Those are big, by the way. My plumbing doesn't allow for that. And so, and so what happens when they start to move, it creates pain. So um, that happened in August. Between August and January, I spent six different events in the hospital where they uh, put me under, operated on me, um, did all kinds of things to remove partial pieces of these stones. Thank God for medicine. Listen, if you're a medical doctor, I love you. (laughs) And if you can prescribe drugs, you're my best friend. I adore you. Well, on January 6th, I'm sorry, January 12th, I was in my seventh episode, right after my sixth episode, January 12th. And about 4 a.m., I woke up in a massive attack. I knew I had two stones left, both on my, on my right side, a 2-millimeter and a 4-millimeter. And in all my days of having kidney stones, um, I've never passed one. They always have to go get them. And this is where all the men go, uh, uh. So they always have to go get them, right? So I, uh, I wake up. I start vomiting. That's what happens to me. So I, I'm in the bathroom. I don't know about you, but I can't quiet vomit. My wife, she's like, uh, I'm like, are you sick? I just threw up. I'm like, how do, you, how do you do that? I am, I am like hugging the toilet. Oh, God, please take me now, Jesus. And it's loud. And I woke my sons up. They're in deep sleep. It's like 5 a.m. I wake them up. My little John Ryan comes running to me. He's like, Dad, well, Dad's sick. You have to go back to the hospital. We had been on vacation. I spent three days of our vacation in the hospital. Took my daughter to college. I spent three days in the hospital there. That's all I've known. It's wrecked our family dynamic, you know, in some dr- dramatic way. I'm sure they're going to need therapy. So I say to my boys, why don't you guys get dressed and just go to the hospital with dad? First time I've ever done that. I'm fine. I just need the special medicine in my arm. That's all I need, which, i.e., is drugs, Dilaudid, my drug of choice. Um, And the fact that I know that means I've had it done a lot. Um, So they get dressed. They go with me, too. We go down. And honestly, they bring the little Kindles. It's it's like a family party, except dad's going to get drugs. And my pain is is up between 8 and a 10, 8 and a 10, 8 and a 10, and... I've taken a few things, but I can't hold it down. I'm just, uh, uh. 
<clears throat> so I go in, and I know the people by name. And so I, hey, Suze, how are you? Like, hey, you're here again. I'm like, yes, I am. Pull my file. You'll see what they do. And I've already called my doctor. And so anyway, so they give me, they give me a shot uh, of, the, of the medicine, and I don't feel a thing. I am still topping out at a 10. So I looked at the nurse, and I said, would you speak to the doctor? If you recall, last time we were here, you gave me two shots, and that's what does me. Jill says, hey, I'm going to take the boys to breakfast. And I said, that's good because I'm about to start moaning, and I really don't want my boys to see me in this state. So she takes the boys to breakfast. Out the door they go. The nurse comes over, gives me another shot. That's the last thing I remember, really. And so from here on out, if I tear up, even though I've been joking about this, you just have to excuse me. My, uh, my wife goes out with the boys, and while they get to the lobby, she says to the boys, why don't you sit here and play on your Kindle Fires? Because we don't have money to buy them iPads. Why don't you play on your Kindle Fires and, um, and just wait? I'm going to go make sure Dad actually goes to sleep. Jill walks back in the room, stands at the door and says, are you okay? And she said what I did was this one, uh, and I leaned over, and that was it. And I turned blue, and then I turned purple. It was so routine, I wasn't hooked up to anything. I didn't have an oxygen monitor or anything on me. And for about three minutes, I didn't breathe. She starts screaming instantly. Nurse comes to the door in an attempt to calm her and says, what's wrong? And she says to me, or she says to the nurse, he's not breathing. And the nurse looks, and then she says, code blue. And I don't know any of this is going on. They rally around me, bring the little paddles, do the whole bit. Uh, it was not a good day uh, for my wife, not a good day for me. I, I just didn't know it. This is the point in the story where it's, I'd love to tell you I saw a light. I didn't. I don't know what that means. Don't hold it against me. I know, I know you're supposed to see lights. I, I don't know what to do with that. So I remember waking up, and this is where you just have to believe me. This is so subjective, and I can't objectively prove this to you at all. I remember waking up, and my first thought was, oh, they went ahead and did surgery while I was under. Thank God. And then I hear her say, somebody, he's back. In which case, I was like, oh, crud. This didn't go well. Um, and immediately, I felt two thoughts. I feel unbelievable gratitude. I don't know how to explain it. I just felt grateful. I, I think as I've unpacked it a bit, I feel grateful that my time's not over. I feel grateful that God still lets me be connected to my wife and my boys. I'm not done there. I have work to do. And uh, all that I hope for them, I haven't been able to live out yet. And I'm grateful that I get to stand here and do this. I know God's not done. The other, the, other, the other thought that I had, along with just an overwhelming sense of gratitude, almost instantaneously, was I really do have a lot to do. I have a lot to do. I think more than ever, I came face to face with this truth. It's not my life. It's God's. There's this old song we used to sing, um, Tis only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for God will last. We used to sing a song when I was a kid, It Is My Father's World. Since January 12th, almost every day, to some degree, I've, um, I've unpacked that a bit in my life. And as I've done that for myself personally, what I became aware of for our church is there's too many of us not living the freedom and the joy that God wants us to live when we embrace this. And it has cost us a price higher than I think we realize we're paying. I think that 
in some spiritual sense, the rate on the credit card keeps getting adjusted and going up, and we don't even know it. And I don't want that for you. And I don't want some lie of the enemy to come into your heart and say, oh, over the next three weeks we're going to deal with stewardship and what God wants me to do with money and how he wants to bring me freedom and joy. And because of your pain, because of your your, your misconceptions, because of an experience you've had, or because of what's going on in our media, you think, oh, they only want from me. Honest to goodness, that's not my heart. I, I don't have enough time left to play those kind of games. I'm serious about this. But I'm serious about it because I want you to experience what I want for myself, for my wife, for me, for my boys, for my daughter. I want you to experience what it is to live under a God who looks at me and says, I love you. I've given you an amazing commission. You've been tapped on the shoulder for a powerful thing. Don't waste it. Make it count. The steward's role was wildly important. He or she played with other people's money. Not for their own benefit, although it did benefit them. Stewards were well taken care of in the ancient world. But they did it for the benefit of the other. And they took great joy in making what they received benefit the person who gave it to them. Benefit the people around them who the person who gave them the blessings had responsibility over. Their joy, their purpose. They woke up every day realizing, the good stewards did, It's not mine, but I can make it count. It's not mine, but I can bless people. It's not mine, but I can be master over this stuff. It's not mine. It will not rule me. And I don't think enough of us live like that. And the unfortunate part for us is we do it at our own expense in this life. And the Bible says in the expense of the life to come. And all the information we need, honestly, is found right here in this book. So we're going to tangibly and practically and sober-mindedly, and hopefully with some laughs, unpack what it means for you and me to be stewards. Stewards of our time. Stewards of our resources. Stewards of our treasure and our talents. Not so that four corners can get anything from you but so that you can experience what God has for you. I don't like the enemy of our soul who loves taking away the power of the first mandate given to us. He loves taking away the blessing of the first statement of value spoken over you and me. We are made in his image. We stand in God's place managing God's stuff. So we're calling it mine. And I want you to go on this journey with us. Why don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a few steps together. While you're getting out your connect card, which looks like this, you filled it out earlier. If not, go ahead and do that. I want to tell you about something really cool my family and I are doing. The folks that are moving in place are um, going to the restroom or something like that. I I think that's all. Um, My family and I this summer are going to uh, the Smoky Mountain Children's Home on a missions trip. It's not because they have a bunch of money laying around, but it's pretty cheap, about cap of 600 bucks per family. We have six people in our family, so it's not a bad deal. About 200 bucks for an adult, about 140 or so for a student. I'm taking my kids because I want them to begin to get a real picture of what it means to live as a steward of God's stuff and to take some of their time and some of their abilities and invest it in others. 
we would like, uh, we'd like you to try to go with us. Several of you have already signed up. We're extending the sign up two weeks because honestly, I wasn't satisfied with how many people have signed up. So in a minute, when we get through our connect card, you're going to see one of the next steps is I want to go. And if you want to go, we'll help you. We will. Now, I won't pay everybody's way. We don't have money for that. But we'll help you. And I'd at least like to have a conversation with you. But let's start with next step A right now. I want to accept Jesus as a Lord and Savior in my life for the first time. We believe that if you get in an active relationship with God, which is what this step talks about, that God comes into your life and you move into life with him in a traumatic, in a dramatic partnership kind of way. He becomes the leader, you become the follower. He becomes the savior, you become the forgiven. We'd like to help you do that. If you check the box, we'll send you info about that. Next step B, I want to get baptized. Hey, today there's some folks getting baptized. Whoo, this is what we're about. When people realize for themselves, I want you to know that I'm with God and he's with me. It doesn't make me better than you. In fact, I can be a bonehead. That's what they've all said to me. I can be a bonehead. But I'm with God now, and he's with me, and he's making a difference in my life. If you want to do that, check the box. Or maybe better yet, it's a nice day out. Just get up in a moment when these folks move in and stand in line right over here and get baptized today. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, you can get baptized. You're a candidate. All right? Next step, C. I've made a mess out of some of what I was given to manage. Relationship, money, stuff, people, time, talent. And I'm returning to God with an open and teachable heart for another chance. Hey, if that's you, go on this journey with us. Check the box. Let us pray for you. Next step, D. You know, we're building this building. We're surrounding it with prayer. So send me the link to sign up for 40 hours of prayer. For 40 hours, we're going to pray from Sunday, May 20th at 5.30 p.m. for 40 hours all the way through. And if you check this box, we'll send you the link. You can sign up for what's open, and you can join us in just bathing that place with prayer. God said, I'll build my house, and it'll be a house of prayer for all people. And then E, the one I was talking to you about, I'm going to go on the Four Corners missions trip to the Smoky Mountain Children's Home. Next step, E there, gentlemen. On Tuesday, June 26th through Saturday, June 30th. If you can do this, check the box. If you need info, you step out to our outreach table in the lobby, and they'll tell you about it. We're going to have fun, games. You're going to love this. We're going to serve some kids. And we're going to use some of our time, talent, and treasure. We're going to bless others in a powerful way that will leave a lasting impact. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the privilege to be made in your image, to be stewards and not owners. And God, I pray that for the next few weeks, as we unpack this as a church, that you would give us sober-minded judgment. You would give us open, teachable hearts. That, Lord, you would help us see that while our lives are short, it is but a vapor. It is dramatically important. And we can touch eternity in this world. God, there's all kinds of emotions around this subject. I pray that you would just hold those back and let us look squarely in your word. We pray it in your powerful and holy name. Amen and amen.